Russian irregular forces fighting in Ukraine, Syria, and Africa are not members of any armed forces, and they're not mercenaries. They are criminals. How to hold them criminally accountable is the subject of this episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. Welcome to Episode 84 of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare. I'm Chris Mayer, retired U.S. Cavalry Colonel, former instructor of the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College and the Naval War College. In these podcasts, I describe what I think every citizen should understand about war, peace, and the gray area in between. If you think these podcasts are worthwhile, please hit like and subscribe or follow, and maybe leave a comment. These podcasts are not monetized or subsidized in any way, nor do they represent anyone's opinion but my own. I hope that you had a nice break for Christmas and the other holidays. This episode picks up where we left off at the end of episode 83, where I called these Russian irregular forces criminal combatants. Because of the holiday break, I'm going to start with a quick review of how we got here. Wagner and similar Russian irregular forces present a problem regarding accountability. A key component of that problem is their status under international law. Any attempt to hold them accountable under an inappropriate status risks acquittal and lost opportunity for that accountability. In episode 81, I described why such forces are not mercenaries under relevant international law. The requirements for proving someone to be a mercenary are very restrictive and very difficult to prove. In episode 82, I explained why I think these Russian irregular forces are not members of the armed forces, militia, or a volunteer corps according to the law of war, and therefore they do not have combatant immunity and can be tried for any death and destruction that would normally not be considered criminal if done by armed forces according to the military necessity and the law of war. This leads to my argument in the previous episode that Russian irregular combat forces, such as Wagner, are unlawful combatants, which may also be called unprivileged belligerents or my proposed term of criminal combatants. If captured, they are not entitled to be treated as prisoners of war and instead should be treated as criminals under the laws of the state where they were unlawfully engaging in combat. I also mentioned options for treating the organizations, Wagner, Redut, and other of the two dozen or so paramilitary groups, as terrorist or transnational criminal organizations. But what do such declarations mean and how might they enable accountability? The United States declared Wagner as a transnational criminal organization, but stopped short of declaring it and associated entities as foreign terrorist organizations. As a transnational criminal organization, the financial assets and all property of the Wagner Group in the United States and its territories are frozen. This similarly affects persons and organizations associated with the Wagner Group, such as the Concord Management Agency, and all funds, goods, and services related to Wagner are blocked. In addition to freezing assets, declaring the Wagner Group a terrorist organization, as would have been done under the Harm Act introduced in the previous session of Congress, would make any material support or assistance to Wagner illegal. Theoretically, it would also exclude persons associated with Wagner from entering the United States, but given the current situation on both borders, that exclusion would only be theoretical. Now, although the United States has been slow in declaring Wagner a terrorist organization, some other countries have not been so reluctant. These include the United Kingdom, Lithuania, and Estonia. France's parliament has passed a resolution calling on the EU to declare Wagner a terrorist group. The UK's designation would make any kind of support or services to the Wagner Group punishable by law. 
And on top of freezing the organization's assets, Her Majesty's government is able to seize any of Wagner's properties, which could be used in legal cases around compensation for crimes committed by Wagner or its operatives. And there is actually one court case already underway involving seizure of some Wagner property in London. These declarations go after the financial resources that make an organization viable and delegitimize the organization as a whole. But is that enough? The effects of declaring Wagner a criminal organization are really no different than when applied to organized crime syndicates, including narcotic cartels and mafia-like organizations. These do have an impact and may cause grave damage to an organization, at least initially. Furthermore, the ability to interrupt and trace financial transactions enables identifying and targeting key members of those organizations. That said, these effects have not stopped criminal activities of such cartels or mafia-like organizations. The leaders of these organizations are smart, or at least they have smart people working for them, and they can figure out money laundering and other schemes to get around such sanctions. With regard to designation as a terrorist organization, Well, since 1997, Hamas has been a declared terrorist organization by the United States, by the United Kingdom since 2000, and by the European Union since 2001, as well as half a dozen other countries. That designation did not stop terrorist activities by Hamas, most noteworthy, of course, being the October 7, 2023 attack on Israel. So, no, these designations are not enough. They may, however, facilitate holding those fighting for Russian irregular forces accountable under the law. Let me explain. Under the law of war, an individual is either a combatant with privileges and responsibilities associated with the law of war, or that person is a civilian and must be treated as a protected person under those same laws and customs. There is no in-between. And if there's any doubt as to the status of captured personnel, they must be treated as legitimate prisoners of war until otherwise determined by a competent authority. Therefore, without a prior determination that a person directly participating in hostilities is not privileged to do so under the laws of war, they must be given all of the privileges and status of a legitimate combatant. If, on the other hand, an organization is declared to be illegitimate, such as it being a criminal or terrorist organization, then persons belonging to such organizations may, when captured, be presumed to be suspected criminal civilians and treated as such. Note that I said suspected. Once captured, the provisions under common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions and Geneva Convention 4, which deals with protections to the civilian population, still apply. They must still be charged with a crime and be presumed innocent of such crimes until proven guilty in a fair trial. They are not, however, entitled to the respect and honor offered to a captured member of the armed forces, such as the right to wear a uniform to be addressed by their military rank and to be treated similarly to members of the capturing armed forces insofar as their detention allows. Now, this seems like a simple and straightforward solution. Upon capture, use the designation as a criminal or terrorist organization as a prior determination that a member of that organization is a civilian and subject to civilian detention and prosecution. At the same time, it enables for actions against the organization as a whole and persons providing outside support to the criminal or terrorist organization. So why aren't we doing that? Unfortunately, I'm out of time for this episode and describing the difficulties of applying this accountability will have to wait for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.